Well, after the ministry of the word, we'll sing from hymn 23 and all the stanzas of that, which is based on the words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Again, our text is Luke 2, verses 1 to 7. I encourage you to have that open before you this afternoon as we look at that passage. <clears throat> Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, death and taxes. It's often the two things of which we can always be certain, as the saying goes. And that's definitely true when it comes to the demonstration of powers of the nations, or when the nations were in control. When it came to taxation and war, the Roman Empire wielded more power than most on that score. The Roman army ruled over ancient Mediterranean world with much bloodshed and ruthlessness, taxation of vassal nations proceeded. And still to this day, we are called by God to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That serves as the background for this very familiar passage of Scripture as Luke describes at the beginning of this passage with this decree that went forth from Caesar Augustus where there was to be a registration of all these different people within the region of the Roman Empire. This forced the requirements of hectic travel and people from every province were forced to journey many kilometers to reach their destinations. This is almost certainly due to taxation purposes. According to early historians, people like Tacitus and others, the emperor kept record of the grand totals. And we still have documents today uh, of this time period, of the second century. There couldn't be taxation apart from enrollment. Census for taxes was the very basic principle of the Roman government. Thus we're told about the far reach of Caesar's power. Why is that? Well, the emperor stretched his arm to squeeze out tribute from a small village far away from Rome. It was so that a small town carpenter with his expectant teenage bride would be forced, forced to, go with, to go to his own city. And though Caesar did not know it, he had brought about events that would turn the whole world upside down. As one little family would make its way to Bethlehem in order to fulfill God's plan. For as you may remember, this is exactly what Mary had sung in, in a few verses before this. In chapter 1, uh, verses 51 and 52 where it says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So as we look at Luke 2 today, consider God's word under the theme, What the King in the Manger Reveals. Three points for this afternoon's sermon. First of all, beautiful paradoxes. Secondly, deep parallels, and then thirdly, tender power. 
So first of all, beautiful paradoxes. And what we mean by a paradox is the irony or the unexpected events that occurred in seemingly impossible situations. And so there are a number of them that we find within this very well-known story. One paradox is the purity in the account of an unwed mother. The birth of a child to a girl who was not married is not surprising or unheard of, though it was tragic. Normally, there would be such distress in times like these as parents would be frantic with grief and indecision. But that tone of, of grief and distress is not the tone of what we read in Scripture. Luke 1 verse 34 We read of the purity of Mary who asked that question, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel replied by saying, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And the purity of Joseph is also noted in the other gospel, Matthew 1, when he believed the angel and he shielded Mary by staying with her and being a husband to her after the birth of Jesus. And there's also the the joy that was experienced. Normally under these circumstances, Mary would have been in danger of public exposure, even danger of execution. According to the Old Testament law, she would have appeared to be pregnant outside of wedlock. But as the the story progresses, we're told that there wasn't grief, there was joy. Mary joins Elizabeth, her cousin, and they together break forth in praise of what God was doing. And then there's also the paradox of the shepherds. There's the announcement that came to them who were at the lowest level of Jewish society, the announcement coming from the highest beings, highest created beings, mightiest of beings who announced good news to the weakest and most insignificant. And then what we see mostly here is the worldly power of Caesar next to the apparent weakness and humility of a baby. The Roman registration required every man in Israel to return to his ancestral homeland. If you look in your Bibles once again at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says there, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. There's a double mention here of David's name. This is what we read already in the gospel. In chapter 1, in this gospel, uh, verses 69 and 70, it says he was He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets. So the whole reason why Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem, it was because this was David's city, the homeland of the ancient king, thus fulfilling that 
old promise of the Messiah being born there, like we read about in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient times. And so what is so ironic here is that God used Caesar to bring the Savior here. Proud Caesar became the unwitting servant of the divine plan. What at first appeared to be a great show of Caesar's power proved actually to be the supremacy of God's sovereignty. Even Caesar's decree was part of God's divine plan since God rules all things by and for his glory. It shows the contrast between the worldly power of Rome and the apparent weakness of Jesus, of the baby. That's why this gospel includes this detail, because anyone who knew this time period, who lived during this time, would understand that contrast between the power and fame of Augustus and the weakness, obscurity, and humility of the babe in Bethlehem. And that brings us to another irony. Though he was the son of David and the true king of Israel, he received no royal welcome. He deserved to be greeted with honor. He was not received that way at all. Under the indignity which he endured, we need to remember who Jesus was and still is. He is the eternal son of God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the firstborn over all creation, the unique Son of God, only begotten. The second person of the Trinity, who is the express image of the Father. But where was Jesus born? Where did they lay him? Verses 6 and 7 bring that out. It says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There was no room in the inn. There were no vacancies. There was no guest house or other lodgings. And even those lodgings at that time were usually not that great. They shared rooms together. The Bethlehem Inn was hardly a Motel 6, let alone a five-star hotel. So what did they use? Well, they had to find another place. One early Christian tradition dating back to the second century maintains that Jesus was Born in a cave. Justin Martyr. According to him, he wrote, quote, Since Joseph had nowhere to lodge in that village, he lodged in a certain cave near the village. And while they were there, Mary brought forth the Messiah and laid him in a manger. That's not surprising. Since in 
those days, people often stabled their animals in caves, like the ones in and around Bethlehem. So Mary followed through with her words, saying to the Lord, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It meant traveling long distance while she was pregnant. It meant the anxiety of giving birth in a strange town. It meant suffering her child's messy entrance into the world. It meant wiping him clean, tearing cloths and bundling up to keep him warm, and then placing him in a feeding trough, along with all the smells of manure. In short, everything we know about the birth of Jesus points to its indignity and its obscurity. And that congregation brings us to another paradox. Though born Savior, most people were unconcerned and unaware of what God was doing. When God's Son came, He was unrecognized and unwelcomed. Some Israelites were looking forward to his coming. And you heard about that this morning. But most were so preoccupied. And their thoughts were elsewhere. And they were dull in heart. They were like the prophet Isaiah predicted in Isaiah. 1 verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Or John 1 verse 11, which says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Many did not know that he had come, and why. It's reflected in this more recent Christmas song that says, O little town of Bethlehem, looks like another silent silent night. Above your deep and dreamless sleep, a giant star lights up the sky. And while you're lying in the dark, there shines an everlasting light. For the king has left his throne and is sleeping in a manger tonight. O Bethlehem, what you have missed while you were sleeping. For God became a man and stepped into this world today. O Bethlehem, you'll go down in history as a city with no room. For its king. You see, the paradoxes are here for a reason. It's so that we may grasp the magnitude and the depths and the lengths of what the Lord was willing to do to save sinners from sin and Satan. And the question that confronts us this afternoon is do we believe this? Do we believe that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was once a babe in his mother's arms? That's what the king in the manger reveals. Shows us that he didn't save from a distance, but he came into this world to be close, as possible as he could, sympathizing with us in our sufferings. And there are many more paradoxes that we could bring out from this, but it brings us to what we see here, secondly, 
And that is the deep parallels. The the paradoxes of the manger scene have certainly echoed throughout history. And there are several more that could be mentioned from the word of God. Jesus came from the highest place of glory to the lowest place possible in order to help us in our low position. The the story of the nativity is there so that we may see the deep parallels between the events and how they're fulfilled in our lives today. And there are eight parallels that we find in Scripture. Consider the parallel that's between Luke 2, verse 11, and John 1, verse 12. As we read a little bit later on, in Luke 2, 11, it's about the shepherds who were given that announcement that Christ had been born and given to them. The miracle of this birth also brings about new birth, John 1, verse 12 describes. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. And in another parable, another parallel, pardon me, is found in Luke 2, verse 7, and John 14, verse 2. Jesus was born in these squalid conditions because there was no room for for him in the inn. He had no place. He had to be put in a manger. But what does that have to do with us? Well, as you may remember, Jesus made that promise. John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house, there are many rooms, many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Or think of another parallel that's found when we place Matthew 2, verse 11, alongside Galatians 3, verse 26. And there in Matthew 2, verse 11, we're told about the wise men from the east coming to see Jesus, bringing their gifts to him, bowing down and worshiping. In Galatians 3, verse 26, we're told, for in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. It is by faith that we too are his sons. It goes on to say, for for there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. An additional parallel we see uh, see rather between Luke 2 verse 51 and Galatians 5 verse 1, where in Luke 2 verse 51, when Jesus was a, a child, he was obedient to his parents moving with them to Nazareth. And because of his obedience to God, we read in Galatians 5 verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Jesus made himself subject to God's will that by his power and through the Holy Spirit, we too would be free from sin. A further parallel is between Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, and 1 Peter 5, verse 4. 1 Peter 5, verse 4. Uh, Philippians 2 talks about the fact that Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. 
was willing to let go of his place in heaven and take the form of a servant, coming in human likeness, giving his life as an offering for sin. Whereas in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, we're told, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive that unfading crown of glory. So he left glory so that we could have glory. Another parallel is between uh, Matthew 8, verse 20 and uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Jesus said in Matthew 8, 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, we read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Furthermore, we see another parallel between Luke 2, verse 16 and Luke 15, verse 20. When the shepherds heard the message of the angels, Luke 2, verse 16, which we didn't read, tells us that they came and they saw that the good news was true, that they went in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And they went into their country and told others about that good news. But in Luke 15, verse 10, we're told, Jesus speaks of the joy in heaven. There's, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And one more parallel can be drawn between uh, Matthew 2, verse 13, and Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. In Matthew 2, there was, no, there, there was rather a need to, to flee from Herod's decree to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. As evil as Herod was, Jesus, though, came to destroy a much greater ruler, Satan himself. In Luke, uh, sorry, in Hebrews 2, we read, Since therefore the children came to flesh and blood, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And we put all those together and we see how deep and marvelous the love of God is. The way that he worked through history and what he has accomplished for us. Jesus was born that man no more may die. He was laid in a manger in a stable so that we could have a safe place and glory to dwell. He obeyed earthly parents so that we can have a heavenly father. He left glory so that we can have glory. He became poor so that in him we might become rich in grace. He was received by shepherds so that we could have the angels Rejoicing over us when we repent. He was hunted by Herod so that he could defeat the greater enemy of Satan and even death. As Isaiah writes in chapter 53 verse 10, it pleased the Lord 
to bruise him. That's the love of God for us today. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The great paradox of the Christian story, the undeniable mystery of godliness, Christ coming in the flesh. Well, it shows us one more thing here. His tender power. And we see it in the way that he has cared for us, weak, helpless human beings. God did what was necessary for our salvation. And it was only by coming in human likeness that the Son of God could offer his body as a sacrifice of sins and later be raised from the grave. Now we're not saved by Jesus becoming like us. But we can't be saved unless he did become like us, except sin. Because he had to die and he had to be raised again. There can be no crucifixion apart from the incarnation. There can be no saving from sin apart from the innocent sin bearer coming for us. That's Jesus' tender power. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, therefore, whenever you're concerned to think and act about your salvation, you must run directly to the manger in the mother's womb. Embrace this infant and virgin's child in your arms and look at him born, being nursed, growing up, going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above all the heavens and having authority over all things. Salvation is found in the incarnate God through the Son of God who lived and died and lives again, sharing our humanity. He did this for us. And that's what's so meaningful about all of this. He has tender compassion for us in all of our circumstances in life. And that's a great comfort. He came for those who were lonely. Are you lonely today? Many do at this time of the year feel that way. For thousands, this is, this is the worst time of the year. For others, while enjoying the family times, the lonely are left to themselves and to sad memories. For some, it will be the first Christmas since the death of a loved one. And there will be that reminder every time they see someone smile or offer a, a Christmas greeting. Others will have poor health and be left out. And still others are going to be separated from family because... Travel is not possible. Or commitments keep them where they are. We need to remember those people as well today. As God showed his tender love to us, we must show that tender love to others. And oh, you might say, well, you know, today is, today is a family day. Spoil the day by including others. We were, great, we were given great love in order that we might show that great love to one another. 
So how about you today? Are you resting in the joys and the blessings that are laid before us in this wonderful paradoxical manger scene which reveals to us so much of God's great love? Let us today find our peace and joy in Jesus Christ who came into the world to save us from our sins. Amen.